All right. Welcome to our second Big Hats podcast. We're your hosts, Coleman. And Nathan. And we have four very esteemed guest speakers joining us today for an introduction to the topics they will be presenting in our upcoming webinar on April 24th. We encourage everyone to join the webinar, please. And link is in the description below and go check it out. We'll see you there. Yeah, and our first speaker here is Gladwin D'Souza, chairman at multiple conservation committees, including the Loma Prieta chapter in Sierra Club. He also has 10 plus years in sustainable cities and 20 years in working on city planning. He is an expert on green building, clean energy, smart cities, and sustainable systems. He'll, giving, he'll be giving us a very short intro to broadband for all. And next up, we will have Mary Buxton, who is currently part of the executive com- committee of the Loma Prieta chapter in Sierra Club, working with Silicon Valley on California climate legislation and an activist for clean energy choices in the Bay Area. She will be joining us today to talk about the 30 by 30 initiative. Next up, we have James Coleman, who is currently a council member of South San Francisco District 4. He has worked in many fields involving environmental activism, including Alliance for Climate Education and co-founded the Harvard Undergraduates for Environmental Justice. Most importantly, he is an advocate of the fossil fuel divest movement and will be speaking to us about his perspective on divesting and reinvesting. And finally, we'll have Doug Silverstein, who is the founder of Green Country San Mateo and is part of the Environment and Sustainability Initiative at Thrive Alliance. He also has a MBA from Northeastern, Northwestern and a 25-year record of success in technology sales and marketing. He'll be giving us insight on banning single-use plastic foodware. So thank you for joining us today. And so we'll begin this topic on broadband for all. So as an expert on broadband activism, can you please give a short and succinct explanation of AB34? Uh, AB4 is a broadband bill that looks to improve broadband access for everyone. It's primarily a funding bill. So it brings money in so that cities and schools and hospitals and other institutions can use that money to build better broadband access for everyone. I've read your article on my21.com about the benefits of accessible broadband. So why don't you tell us about the extent of broadband now and how increasing its accessibility contributes to environmental welfare and the reduction of carbon emissions? Yes, that's a good question because uh, the, the epidemic has shown that broadband use can significantly decrease automobile admissions. It used to be that broadband was enabled this thing called work from home. And people were able to work from home to a small extent before. So transit use used to be about eight or 9% and people working from home used to be around four and 5%. This was in, in 2010. But by 2018, broadband for all had improved to the extent where work from home had increased to 8% and uh, uh, transit had declined to 6%. So after the drive alone, which is about 80% of the commute, broadband for all resulting in work from home had resulted in work from home being 8% of the commute, 8% of the way people got to work and transit was 6%. So it had already become better than transit 
as a way for people getting to work. After COVID, of course, we've seen that, you know, 100% of people have had to work from home who had access to broadband. And that really raised the issue, the, the pandemic raised an issue that had already existed, which was that broadband access was very poor across the country. And it turned out that people who had access to broadband were then able to take advantage of it to do things that they needed to do in the pandemic. And those things are the ability to work from home, the ability to school from home, the ability to access healthcare remotely, and the ability to access food remotely. For example, if you were sick with COVID and needed to order food but couldn't go out because you were sick, could you get on the internet and order food? Lots of people couldn't do that. Why couldn't they do that? They couldn't do that because the monopoly broadband companies hadn't put in the access to broadband that they were supposed to since 1996 in the Telecommunications Act where they were required to do that. They just hadn't done it. Yeah, internet is just so crucial nowadays. And that really begs the question, how would broadband be implemented? Uh, will it be through the government or will it be handed over to private companies? And will that raise any additional concerns for the public? So that's a good question. In in the Bay Area, the way it would happen here in on the peninsula and and throughout most of the Bay Area is it would be through the uh, the government providing loans for private companies to do the infrastructure. And that, as it turns out, is not the best way. So for example, when COVID started, one of the big problems I had right away was I had Comcast and I was supposed to be, I, I was supposed to have high-speed broadband access through Comcast, which seemed okay when I was the only one at my house, but then my wife, my son, and my daughter moved in. And all of them had needed to access broadband for their work. So we, so the house basically changed into this place where four people were working. It was like a, a work center. And all of a sudden we were noticing problems with broadband. So we called up Comcast and they said, well, we are really only getting a hundred megabits per second, but, uh, what they could do was upgrade us to one gigabit internet service. And that would cost us about $30 more per month. So this was 2020, or like April of 2020, exactly a year ago. Well, it turns out in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they have public broadband for all. And they were at one gigabit per second 10 years ago. And five years ago, they went to 10 gigabits per second. And now they're talking about fiber optic service that's even faster in Chattanooga. So there are others, there's about a hundred cities across the US that have public internet like Fort Collins and places in Louisiana, places you wouldn't even think would have access to broadband, right? And they have much better broadband than we do. Yeah, that's honestly so crazy. So, that, so that's a good question you raised because it is we are going to be paying for broadband that the monopoly companies are going to give us and it has a it is a restricted form of broadband that has resulted in all these problems that we see today where students have to go and sit in front of mcdonald's to do their homework i recently read this article um and i found that new york was um they, they just passed this law 
where they give access to broadband for $15 a month, I think. So that's a really big price change. Mm-hmm. So usually the average is like $50. And now they're making it more accessible by lowering the cost of broadband. So how do you think, how effective do you think this law would be? And do you think it'd be implemented in like different states? So we have good examples here in the Bay Area. So in downtown San Jose, that's free public internet access for anyone. And what that does is it keeps a lot of the business locally so that instead of going to work, somebody stays home and works and then they can go out into the park and still have access to internet. And then they could go to a local coffee shop, get a coffee, walk out on the street and work off on a bench by the Guadalupe River and have access to internet, right? So it's keeping all that business locally that somebody would have taken it and got in a car and driven say to San Mateo to work. The other place that has public internet is Mountain View and that was built by Google. And the Google had offered to put an internet for all the cities on in Silicon Valley. But the cities ended up refusing it because they did not have, did not have control over it. It was, it was Google's broadband. And when you look at Mountain View today, it has much better broadband access than Belmont or San Mateo or you know the cities that we are familiar with. So the what kind of broadband we have, that's a decision that we're going to have to make longer term. It's not one that AB4 is, is going to solve. Wait a minute. You're right, it is AB34. The, but the original bill in the Senate is SB4. So it's not, what SB4 and AB34 are doing is they are providing money for the monopoly companies to provide the better internet service that they were supposed to provide by the 1996 Telecommunications Act. They are not doing what should be done, which is allowing local jurisdictions to set up their own community broadband access. And that's what you have in places like Fort Collins and Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee is community broadband access. Right. Well, that's fascinating. And I guess going along the path of reducing our own carbon footprint with broadband, what is something that um, an average person could do right now um, uh, to help this cause, this broadband for all cause? Oh, so there's two things they could do. One is, you know, write a letter to their assembly person or their uh, senator and ask them to support SB4 and AB34 for bringing money in for to upgrade the broadband infrastructure for everyone. But the second thing they can do is ask their city council and especially their board of supervisors to develop a system that would allow community broadband access. In other words, let the county build the access for, the, for us and put in the fiber network that will allow us to have high-speed broadband internet. And if they don't want to do what Chattanooga, Tennessee has done, they should at least do something that's a hybrid between uh, public broadband access and uh, private broadband access. Because what we see today is that the monopoly private broadband access is the worst access you can have across Mm. the country. Interesting. 
Yeah, um, I think it's really important to look at the huge impact that uh, COVID has had on um, air pollution, especially carbon emissions and air pollutions, especially because you know the area has been working on reducing carbon emissions and especially air pollution for about 70 years. And the problem has gotten worse in that time to the extent where now we have all these spare the air days and nobody's paying any attention to them. And what COVID did overnight was realize a policy goal that we have been unable to accomplish by working through the regular process. So it's clear that if we had better broadband access, we would have less air pollution. And that in turn benefits everyone. That is really good news. That is a lot of hope for us. This is Mary Buxton and um, we have the California 30 by 30, which is perhaps one of the biggest accomplishments thus far as it protects 30% of the planet by the date 2030. And in addition, and in addition is part of a larger plan to protect 50% of the planet by 2050. So Mary, why don't you talk to us a little bit about this goal issued by Governor Newsom? Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, 30 by 30 was something I first learned about last year when Assemblyman Oshkara did AB 3030, a bill that did not pass due to COVID and whatever reasons the Assembly has. And um, I just love the idea of preserving 30% of land and water by 3030. And it has the additional components of protecting biodiversity slowing or reversing climate change and equal access to nature and equality in nature so that it's not just something that people who have money have access to. So it has a, a great combination of goals. It's really exciting to me. And now that I'm starting to work on it, I realize it's a lot more work <laughs> than the excitement, but uh, it is an ambitious goal. Okay, so you said, okay, so access to nature is directly linked to a healthier lifestyle. Um, so I read this article saying that historic racism and many settlement practices have forced people of color and minority groups to live in communities that are like nature deprived. So yes. having less access to parks, so it's basically having less access to parks, open spaces, wildlife, and native plants. So in your opinion, the 30 by 30 effort would this resolve this issue of exclusion? It would definitely uh, make headway toward that. I think we have a lot of uh, pathway to go. But you know what you brought up, which is really good, mm -hmm. is that it's not just an equality issue. It's also a health issue. Because if you don't have access to green space, you watch TV or sit on the computer and do computer games when there's all this very cool stuff out here. The other issue that this uh, 30 by 30 addresses is the loss of biodiversity, which is just happening, the loss of land and loss of biodiversity is just happening at such a fast clip. It's really scary if you start to look into it. So this will go a long way, like in our urban greening project that one of our members is, is or several of our members have developed is they would do green streets, but also try to have um, nature corridors throughout cities so wildlife could uh, make their way to, you know, when they migrate, they 
they could be able to go through cities and migrate. And because if they can't, the gene pool gets very thin and that contributes to the loss of biodiversity. So all of our roads and highways are big barriers for animals who have traditional or historic, you know, sort of migration paths. That's great. Um, so you said this plan would take effect sometime at the beginning of 2022, right? Well, what's going to happen is this year, um, it was kind of disappointing to me because I expected to be able to hit the ground running, which was a bit naive. But what they're doing this year is they're doing a series of stakeholder meetings. And they're talking to ranchers, farmers, individuals, uh, you name it, city governments. And uh, they're having a series of meetings throughout the state. The one for the San Francisco Bay Area happens to be between 4 and 6 p.m. on the 21st of April. And uh, this is where the community can have input because, you know, ecology issues are local. And so, you know, what we might have trouble with here wouldn't be the same thing on coastal Southern California. So they're taking input. And so our chapter, the Sierra Club Loma Prieta, is developing a list of projects from all of our conservation committees of what they think in their areas of expertise that we need to do to preserve land and water by, of 30% by 3030. And just let me remind you, as you started out, that this is all in line to get to half Earth or 50% of preserved land and water by, um, by 2050. Great. So could you give us just like a couple of examples of some of the issues and ideas that you'll be proposing? Um, yeah. Okay, so I just mentioned one, which is the urban greening. And that is uh, where they might turn parking lots into parks. They would uh, protect, uh, uh, probably protect, you know, like San Francisco Bay coastline since we're gonna have three feet of sea level rise by 2050. Um, they would do urban green streets to help people get out of cars and onto active transportation like scooters and bikes, you know, where it's actually safe to right. ride closer to traffic. And they've, they've been experimenting with this in a lot of cities. Um, they also, um, in that project, I believe, would do that uh, wildlife corridor issue that I was talking about. So that's one whole huge area. And it seems like the Sierra Club Sacramento is extremely interested in that, and that Sierra Club Loma Prieta chapter is uh, sort of ahead of the game. They have a, a plan and a project already defined. Um, so that's, that's excellent. We also... Um, you know, wildfire protection and resistance is part of it. Um, there's uh, one issue, the thing that got me really upset about loss of biodiversity is as kind of did a study of the coho salmon earlier this year and learned that they were at 1% of their former numbers. And I actually think if we went back farther, they would be at less than 1%. But that you know, brings the quality of the San Francisco Bay and all of our stream health um, because the salmon need to go upstream to spawn and then salmon die, but the uh, steelhead and other species, um, they, they turn around and go back out to the ocean. 
So we need those waterways clean and unobstructed. And, um, and that also brings up, there's a whole bunch of critters that don't get any attention. And these are your amphibians like frogs and newts and um, you know anyone in sort of a riparian corridor. And so there would be hopefully a project to protect you know, along streams and rivers to have enough protection from human interference um, that these animals could, you know, go on with their lives. So those are some of the projects I can think of off the top of my head, but there will be more because our Very chapter nice. is a pretty active chapter and we have, it's a little daunting how many uh, conservation committees we have. <laughs> it's good, but a long list, so. Yeah. Okay, and finally, what are the biggest impediments to the 30 by 30 goal? And how can it be circumvented? And can is it really possible to achieve our conservation goals with the size of our population? Well, you do bring up uh, a challenge. And my answer to that is I have no idea, but I my approach is to go down trying. <laughs> And to just do whatever I can to try to move along. The more I learn, the more alarmed I get. And so for the future of, say, my son, for you, I would really like you guys to have, you know, nature closer to what we have today. And so I just think, yeah, it's possible. It's just going to take a lot of people. So one impediment is we need more volunteers because um, there will be a lot of work. And I do wanna mention that both the state and the United States have what they call a climate action core. So a person does not need to become a full-time volunteer in the environment to do anything about this. They would have you know, very, very short, you know, like 30 minute projects possibly on up to full day or whatever they're going to have a clearinghouse so people can, you know, join in and contribute. So volunteers is one uh, possibility that I'm hoping gets developed, getting the word out to people, which is great. You're doing this podcast and your webinar next weekend um, is another one that people, I think, if they get this idea, I think they'll get excited about it. Other uh, barriers would be, um, Part of what the state is doing with these stakeholder meetings is they're talking to ranchers and private landowners. And, you know, there's a lot of this land that is not under public, uh, you know, governance. And so we're gonna have to do uh, communication and collaboration to get it done. So um, I don't know anything about funding yet. I think they're just getting the plans together. And as you said, this year is being spent in assessment and then they will have to have what they call the pathways document, which is how the heck are we gonna to get to this by 2030? That needs to be on Governor Newsom's desk by next February, 2022. And then, um, yeah, so, so I don't know if that speaks enough to the barriers. I'm sure they will be there, but um, it's just a, you know, if you don't have a goal, you can't get there and we've got a goal, so. Now we're working on the means to make the goal happen. And then we'll need people to make the goal and the means happen. That makes sense. Hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more groups trying to contribute to this cause. And hopefully it works. This is a really well, yeah. good project. Yeah. 
And I think if anybody knows of groups, they could uh, suggest it. I've been, uh, oh, one thing I didn't mention, if I can just add this at the end. Yeah. One of the groups, uh, tribal groups, are one dispossessed group just routinely if you look through our U.S. history. And they, their traditional tribal knowledge is being sought out and elevated in this process of trying to restore land and water because many of their traditional tribal practices are actually much more effective and um, sustainable than what we've done. And so the, uh, I just watched a, a webinar at the Department of Natural Resources on, you know, what do you want to co-management or turning over management to tribes. So between tribal nations and the California state government, that they would government to government work together and build the trust to learn from the tribes to manage the land that they have traditionally uh, maybe been moved off of but have, you know, hold dear and sacred. So that's, that's one thing I didn't mention, which is a huge part of this. I think it's fascinating that we're resorting to going back to our roots to protect our lands, I think. Yeah, yeah, well, um, it might work better. <laughs> that's true, yeah. yeah. I see that, yeah. Yes. Well, I just think anybody listening to this podcast should tune in to the webinar or yes. the seminar you're putting on next weekend, because yeah. I think it's especially cool that people your age are doing this because it's your future. And it's just super inspiring to me. Yeah. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye guys. Okay. All right. So we can begin here. Um, thank you for joining us again. And can you start by telling us what is divestment? Yeah, so many people and institutions have large sums of money that they choose in, that they choose to invest in different areas, basically in the stock market. And uh, a lot of institutions choose to put a portion of that money into fossil fuel companies. Um, and divestment is basically a movement to drive social change by demanding that these institutions take money out of the fossil fuel industry and invest in other areas that better benefit the community. Okay. Um, why should we? Why should we divest? And when, when we could just, or when we could just focus on stopping fossil fuel projects like offshore drilling, um, coal power plants, and like hydro fracking wells. So why should we? Why should we divest when we could just do that directly? Well, we could do both, and we definitely should do both. Um, and the reason why we want to have a focus also on divestment is because there have been social movements in the past. Um, through divestment of South, South African apartheid and the divestment from the tobacco industry that sends a moral message to the entire world that we are not going to be profiting from these immoral institutions that profiteer basically off of human destruction and exploitation. So I guess, what's the, what is the important message here that we're trying to convey to fossil fuel companies when we divest? Uh, we're trying to convey that this is no longer something that we want to profit off of, that this is an institution that should not exist, that we should be completely transitioning uh, to renewable energies, and that includes, you know, what ties we have financially with the industry. Hmm. Um, and of course, 
there are very, very big investors um, responding to the fossil fuel divestment. And um, is it even possible for institutions and large business businesses to divest from fossil fuels because, um, you know, it's it's a huge economic impact on their side? Yeah. So actually, if you look at investment portfolios that include fossil fuels and those that don't include fossil fuels, you'll see that the portfolios that do not include fossil fuels do much better than those that don't have it. And so it's actually you know, more financially responsible for institutions to divest. Um, but there is such a, such a tendency not to because, uh, because of course, you know, the big fossil industry and, and they don't want to, to politicize it. Um, but large institutions like the entire University of California um, Oxford University, uh, the U New York State Pension Fund, and so many others have already divested from fossil fuels. The question is, you know, when is next institution going to do so and realize that what they currently have invested is a financial um, liability. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay, so uh, which corporations are a great start to divest from, if you want to include that, like some examples to divest from? Yeah, so there are many, um, many, you know, anything that has to do with oil, fossil fuels, natural gas, but the big ones would be Shell, Exxon, um, Chevron, and BP. Those would be the, the biggest ones to divest from. Mm, okay. And... Um... For the average person, how could they help um, with this divestment um, cause? What they, what can they do right now? Yeah, for the average person, um, you know, look at any institutions that you're a part of, look at your retirement fund, your pension funds that you might be a part of, and ask them, are you invested in the fossil fuel industry? And if they say they are, then start advocating against those investments. Uh, so I know in California specifically, uh, we have CalPERS, and that is basically any California public service employee. Um, they have a retirement fund, and that retirement fund is also invested in the fossil industry. And there's an organization called Fossil Free California who is working to divest from the fossil industry. And so I definitely would recommend you to get involved with organizations like that. And if one does not exist, then you could start one, start organizing so that you can have a more moral investment portfolio. Mm. That's great news. Um. um yeah just one thing to add on you know there's this divestment movement but we also want to stress reinvestment so we're not not only are we divesting from fossil fuels we also want to put that money back into areas that would benefit the community so like renewable energies um, anything that's community oriented and would help you know people um, so you know it's not just divesting from fossil fuels and putting it into private prisons it's divesting from fossil fuels private prisons the the military industrial complex, all these immoral areas and putting them into places that would better benefit society. Yeah, that's very important to not only divest, but yes, to reinvest. We'll be talking about the single use plastic foodware ban. Uh, Nathan, do you want to ask the first question? Yeah, of course. So can you begin by telling us what the single use plastic foodware ban is just in simple terms? Yes, okay. But really quickly before I do, I just want to say plastics are fossil fuel. They are um, 
they're usually fracked from uh, to, from the United States, um, shipped to Louisiana, and uh, made in a pretty toxic way. So we're talking about something that's kind of nasty. And also, the foodware single-use plastics are not recyclable. So the foodware ban is banning plastics at restaurants, both dine-in and takeout, and requiring restaurants to use compostable foodware and not plastic foodware. Okay. Um, what impact will this ordinance have on potential bans of environmentally damaging products in the future? Yeah, so I mean, this, as I mentioned, these are fossil fuel products and they've got toxins in them, these uh, foodware, plastic foodware. So what's happening is once um, people use the foodware very quickly, and then because it's hardly recyclable, 88% um, is not recyclable, it's going to our waste fills, our landfills, it's going to our streets, our beaches, our oceans, um, it's affecting the climate and also it affects our health. So you got these, these environmentally damaging products. And so um, it will be the, when the restaurants are no longer using plastic foodware, there will be less of the damage to those things I mentioned, the streets, the beaches, the oceans, and our own health. I, I will say that foodware, plastic single-use plastic foodware is only 10% of the total single-use plastics in our San Mateo County waste stream. So we still have a lot of work to do even after we ban plastics at restaurants and cafes. Yeah, so it, it just seems really obvious right now that you know plastic foodware is really harmful to the environment, but that begs the question, um, doesn't that force us to use materials that are more costly and energy intensive to produce? And I guess give you an example, um, like uh, glass, right? Um, glass is not biodegradable, um, but if it breaks, um, you know, you have to buy a new one and it's really fragile. And doesn't the emissions for transporting these, um, these materials also, um, also damage the environment as well and uh, add to the emissions? Yeah, so, so here's the thing, we could, um, so before we had a plastic bag ban at supermarkets and everyone was asked paper or plastic, um, people took a disposable item. Then we put the ban on uh, plastic bags and we said, you can have a paper bag, but it's 25 cents. And what had happened? People brought reusable bags and how many times do you use that reusable bag before you throw it out? thousands probably. So that's, a, that's really what we need to move to is reusables. And there are plenty of examples of reusables at restaurants. Um, so the plastic cup, for example, um, that is used thousands of times is better than single-use plastics. But also there are metal reusables uh, for at cafes and there will be, there should be reusables for produce bags, um, for packaging material. So our intention is not to move towards, or the intention of the ban and potentially all of the movement towards against plastic is to move to reusables that can be used thousands of times and just a life cycle analysis, it's way, way less impactful to the environment. Um, there's a lot of good research out there. I can't uh, quote it right now, but I would highly encourage people to look at the life cycle cost of reusables that reusable thousands of times versus single use plastics or compost, compostable foodwares. All right. Um, 
so why did we choose San Mateo specifically? How does plastic waste, like especially the single-use plastic waste, affect the county? Yeah, so I mean, the, the interesting thing about our county is that it's surrounded by water on both sides, um, 70, almost like 75 miles of water um, in the Pacific Ocean on the west side and 50 miles of water on the east side. So um, if plastic is littered into the street, which often, not often, but some plastic ends up in the street because it's light, it goes into storm drain, it flows to our ocean. Um, there's plastic in the truck tires along 101, and a lot of that flows actually, sadly, um, plastic, small pieces of plastic off truck tires is flowing into our bay. So San Mateo County specifically has a lot of water and um, that's, a you know, it ends up on our beaches. People recreate here in San Mateo County. So it's, uh, that's the way it's different than every other, many other counties. But in effect, um, it should be banned in, in every county for the other reasons like climate and health and the fact that it's not recyclable. As I said, 88% is not recyclable. So the same reasons it should be banned here, it should really be banned everywhere with the unique component that we are surrounded by water and plastics ultimately end up in our oceans and affect our marine life. Um, and also, let me, let me finish by saying that that plastics that's affecting the marine life is getting in our food cycle um, such that it's, if it gets in a fish, it's gonna get or get to the bottom of the ocean and, and eaten by a bottom feeder, it's ultimately get, gonna get in our, our food cycle. Wow, that's really, yeah, that just really shows like, yeah, Semitel is just really susceptible to single-use plastics. Um, uh, I have one more question, one last question. Um, okay. For an average person, what can they do right now to help solve single, uh, to help stop plastic, uh, single-use plastic foodware? Yeah, I mean, everyone can look at their own life, uh, their, their own patterns, and I always say for all sustainability, be thoughtful. First of all, be thoughtful about what you're doing. Don't um, act mindlessly, but think about, um, you know, we're focused, uh, a lot of the movement around here is focused on foodware and there's plenty of other plastics, but I would encourage us all to, to try and focus on foodware first, which um, if we can get some wins in foodware, then we can move on to plastic bag bans and bottle and lid bans. But think about all the things at a restaurant. If you go to a Starbucks or a pizza or a cafe, bring your own mug. If you go to um, a restaurant that has a reusable takeout container, which there will be some in Half Moon Bay, um, go, go to the restaurants that start to, to have reusables. When you go to a restaurant that has dine-in and they bring you cups in plastic water, refuse it and ask for a real cup. So in food, in the, in the restaurant industry, I would recommend people um, put their focus on that. And one thing to go beyond that is carry around your own little fork and knife, uh, I'm sorry, fork and spoon. Um, you can get a really small bamboo fork and spoon and then try that for a while. It's, it's, it could fit in your pocket thoughtfully take it with you when you go out, no matter where you're going, because you might end up eating something. If you get a yogurt, um, say no spoon, I've got my own spoon. So that is a small thing, but there's millions of pieces of plastic cutlery used every day 
in San Mateo County, literally millions, if you think about it, there's 750 million people, 750,000 people here. So one thing, buy a, buy a bamboo fork and, and spoon, one set, bring it with you and see how that could change the way you think about using reusables and not causing and um, affecting the, the environment in so many ways by using these very short-lived single-use plastics that ultimately are going to our landfill or to the ocean because they're not recyclable. Yeah, I agree. Such small actions, as simple as like bring your own utensils, can really lead to very huge impacts on our environments. I just want to add that there's a really good movement here around single-use plastics. We know what the problems are. We know what the challenges are, I mentioned. We know what the solutions are. And it's just a matter of um, us as the public speaking up, going to our leaders in government and demanding that they pay attention to this and they either change laws or they work with their restaurants in their main streets to convert from disposables to reusables. And it's, it's ours to make happen. Um, we can, as a community, drive change. So I recommend we all focus together, work as a team, and try and push this uh, reusable foodware into our restaurants and cafes and school cafes, hospital uh, uh, restaurants, et cetera. Anywhere where food is served to the public prepared, let's not have plastic there. Certainly. I, um, I have one more question, sorry. Sure. I agree with what you said about like, everyone should be bringing out their own utensils and stuff to a restaurant just to avoid using plastics. And this also um, contributes to the larger picture of trying to reduce the demand. How long do you think it takes, it would take to um, just lower the demand for plastic and ultimately stop producing like the harmful plastic? It's, a, it's a, gonna be slow and steady. Uh, like I said, foodware is 10% of single-use plastics. Bottles and lids are say another 10 to 15%. Uh, we could ban bottles and lids on school campuses and community colleges. It's hard to ban them out of Safeway or, or um, Draeger's or Whole Foods or whatever. Um, but we can, we can chip away uh, one section of single-use plastics at a time. Bag, um, bag, produce bags is another great way we can have our lawmakers, local lawmakers, um, require that grocery stores and produce stores have a charge for paper bags and uh, bland plastic, charge for paper bags, people start bringing their reusables. It, the harder pieces are packaging of products that may come from overseas or um, shipping materials where there's a lot of plastic in them. So my recommendation is to focus on foodware, then uh, plastic bags and bottles and lids. And that's still only half of it. So it's going to take a while for our local, state, and federal government to all um, come to the realization that they all have a part to play in banning uh, plastics, pushing us towards either compost, you know, really good compostables or even better. All, all reusable items. All right. I'd really like to thank our guest speakers for joining us today and really appreciate how they've reached out to youth and tried to teach youth um, how to combat these climate issues. So 
Nathan, what do you think about that? What do you think was the most important part of this interview with them? Honestly, I just feel like there are just so many ways right now that we can help the environment, even though it's in the pandemic, even though we might be restricted to go places. I believe that there are just so many different small actions that we can take to really impact the earth. For example, when Doug talked about the um, uh, bringing your own utensils, um, just as simple as that, or bringing your own reusable bags, just as simple as that will just really help reduce the plastics, um, the single-use plastics uh, in our county. And also, um, just send, like what Gladwin said, to send a letter to your local city council um, to, to advocate and to convince, um, to show that you really care about the issue at hand the broadband for all it's just just simple letter you know that will go a very long way um and it's really important um and honestly it, the age doesn't matter like you can be uh in middle school you can be in college you can be um you can be retired like you can do any of these things anyone can do that um from home too uh, which is very powerful and I guess a message to the youth, which um, Mary Buxton um, talked to us about, is um, we are going to have to take care of our Earth. You know, in the near future, um, we're going to face a lot of hardships and issues, environmental issues, and it's just better right now as youth to go ahead, go outside, and solve those problems, and to tackle these problems, and to make sure that our earth is sustainable and healthy in the future. What do you think, Coleman? Yeah, I agree. I agree what you say about that. Um, I just think, see, in my opinion, I, I think that since we are, we're in the, we're in the COVID pandemic right now, and we just have so much time in our hands to do, to just roll back, think about our environment. And I think these initiatives, whatever we're doing right now, I think it's the perfect time to just, try and make an impact for yourself, try to reduce these carbon emissions, try to speak up. And I think if anyone is looking for a way to contribute, a way to join our our movement, Baycats would probably be the perfect place for you because we hold weekly meetings that addresses and combats these issues. And if you're really looking to sign up, if you're really trying to do something, I think this is the right place for you. Um, yeah, I think this like covers many different people. If you're just looking to learn, you know, our meetings, we have videos, we have presentations, and of course we have our upcoming webinar that you uh, really hi I highly recommend you guys to join. Um, you can learn a lot about the environmental activism and protection, but if you want to go the step further and do volunteering, we have positions that you can join. Um, uh, there's many different initiatives that you can help us with um and yeah just visit our site at baycats.org for more information you can follow us on instagram and twitter baycats underscore ca um yeah head us up, up head us up with a follow let's reach 100 yeah <laughs> yeah we're almost at 100 <laughs> yeah yep. let's go so yeah um we have i, I believe I, i'm weekly infographics um periodic infographics here and there um, go check us out. Share with your friends.
yeah go definitely go check out our website dude. this <laughs> nathan bro nathan just made our website look really nice yo man. all right um coleman i think here. it's worth it i think it's worth it yeah coleman big help too you know you already know um uh, yes 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 so thank you guys for listening in and please yeah. be ready to tune in for our next episode um especially the webinar and the webinar go join the webinar yeah yep. and yeah thanks for listening guys peace out yes thank you